I'm going to hit one more thing is because it's a compliment from Philip. Um, he's comparing us to finding an oasis in the desert. So we are really dry and have a few trees. So as long as we're compared against the rest of the desert, we're pretty cool. Thank you, Philip. We appreciate that. Uh, he said it a little bit more magnanimously than I did, but uh, we appreciate your your well wishes. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the, just dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. So John, our most faithful questioner, which almost sounds like an oxymoron, you're faithfully questioning us constantly. Stop questioning us. No, we actually prefer the questions. Thank you. His first question is a really easy answer. Uh, he has a question about the bond move index, um, and it's a uh, it's a measure of bond market volatility. And his question is, how widely is this index used? And an answer to that is to say, number one, the breadth of people that are looking at the bond market on a daily basis is already pretty narrow. You throw in the fact that the bond market absolutely dwarfs the stock market as far as the number of bond issues out there. It is just huge. Where do people are like, how can it be that much bigger? Well, Ford has Ford Motor has stock that you can buy, and it may even have multiple share classes, maybe two or three. If you're looking at uh, Google, there's three share classes, but they've only got three share classes. Soon as you start getting into bonds, it's every issue of every debt they've ever had. When it matures, if they issue debt, if Ford issued debt 29 years ago as a 30-year bond, 
then you have a 30-year bond maturing in one year, and they may have gotten other debt in the same year. So the number of debt issues at the company level, if they get a small loan and then they get a big loan and then they get different maturity values at different time periods and different rates, you're starting to talk about just for one company, thousands of different bond issues. And then you throw in the fact that municipal, like cities, states, toll roads, they don't issue stock usually. They may issue dozens of different debt securities, debt obligations, which means that the bond market is, to put it extremely lightly, massive. It is really, really big. There's not a good index to track that market. I wish there was. There's really not a good index to track the volatility of the market. But if you are trading in the relatively narrow area uh, of the bond market that is tracked by the move index, almost always it's used. How's that for you? Basically, you're not betting on bonds. You're in a, in a move index, you're buying options based on how volatile you think the bond market is going to be. And uh, there's not, there's professional traders who do that and there are corporations who do that, but how widely followed is it? Not as widely as the VIX, which, which measures the volatility of the stock market. Even that's pretty esoteric. Right. Basically you can make a bet using an option that you think the stock market will be more or less volatile into the future. And and it, does it, if that sounds like the investment world is, is very similar to a casino, you're right. All right. So on to the next question. Uh, hopefully that question was well answered. The bond market is big. Um, and so widely used indicators have a different meaning. There's not a huge number of people that track all of the bond market. There's nobody can track the entirety of the bond market. It's not possible at this point. Well, there's a total bond index. Yeah. But it's not tracking the entirety of the bond market. It's not even close because you've got different maturities across the whole spectrum. So it doesn't make sense to use. It's not like the S&P 500 where you can just say these are the, this is the movement of these stocks because you got to throw in yield to maturities and different durations. There's this is complex and a lot. Uh, so the next question is, Public and private debt versus GDP. And his question is, how does the U.S. compare to China on this critical uh, metric? Um, debt to GDP is a really good number to sort of get a broad swag at. Even in the United States, when you have the Federal Reserve involved in helping to measure this stuff, there's still a lot of debt that's not measured by the Federal Reserve. This is just important to know that when you're talking about China, you're really getting into a vague area. What we can say about China is that uh, the, the Chinese debt to GDP, and this is according to um, South China Morning Post. How's that for you? It's depending on which measurement you're using, somewhere between 300 and 450% of GDP for the totality of debt in China 
that's the government debt and the private debt all added together. Where in the United States, it's it's pretty closely pegged at about the 330% number. The number in the Wall Street Journal that's been circled is uh, 300% of GDP for China. But it's kind of, even in that statement, uh, it, they're just saying it exceeds 300%. The, the total debt in China, as far as a percentage of GDP, is higher than the total debt in the United States. And I wish I could give you clearer numbers on that. But even in the United States, those are hard numbers to get. We're roughly 330% of GDP. Now, having said that, in a growing economy, that's not a bad number. And people go, wait, wait, wait a minute, 300% of GDP, how is that? A, this is a huge number. How is that not a bad number? Well, if you're in a growing family and you just took out a mortgage, it's likely that your mortgage is significantly higher than this year's income. In fact, it's pretty normal for somebody in a $300,000 house to be making a combined income of right around $100,000 a year. Do you see how there might be a 300% ratio there going on where it's the uh, one to three? Uh, it's yep. normal in a growing, growing situation when interest rates are low for those numbers to look really big. Uh, when you're talking about interest rate, rates being as low as they are, people can afford more house because the monthly payment is lower on a lower interest. So having a 300% of GDP, 330% of GDP debt in the United States compared to like the 1970s and 80s, if we'd had that amount of debt, it would have completely bankrupted us. There's no way we could have paid it because that kind of debt at that interest rate, those interest rates were double digits. It was insane. You would simply, the entire budget of the United States would not have been big enough to pay for the debt at those interest rates if we had today's debt. So, that's a danger for the future when interest rates are going up, but it kind of gives us an idea of how do we compare to China. China has a greater amount of debt, and it's less quality. It's more likely to default on the, on the large amounts of debt that it has. Both of us have something in common, though. China basically won't allow a major default. Right. They would basically start buying up the defaulted debt because they don't want their economy to collapse, which would cause the problem with that is it would flood the system with yuan, their currency, renminbi. I know it's called yuan and your renminbi, and I never have been able to figure out why one is one when the other is the other, but it's called both. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's kind of like um, if we were to say uh, that we're officially calling the dollar the buck. It's just another anyway, name for it that other people that people have been using for long enough that it's just official now. The problem is if there's ever a slowdown in the economy, there's a lot of companies that are very highly leveraged in China. A lot of businesses are very highly leveraged. They, they've borrowed out to the hilt and they continue to borrow to the hilt. The Chinese government recognizes that problem and is fighting it, but it can't. You know, if it, if it began to be defaults, which there could be at any point as the economy slows down and the Chinese government began to buy it up, it would flood the economy with their currency, which would cause their currency value to drop, which would probably caused some re international reactions as the value of the yuan dropped and it would cause people to start leaving taking the yuan and converting it to dollars it becomes very complex they're on a 
their economy is far more fragile than ours. It's very centrally regulated, and it's a big experiment that goes on. And the big experiment is that they have a centrally controlled economy. We have one that's pretty much not centrally controlled. Now, let me say this. Our major debt is at the governmental level, at the federal level. The Federal Reserve is monetizing that debt right now as it buys about $90 billion a month of government debt, turns it into cash. It's more cash in the economy. How are they going to handle that? I don't know. But it's, it's a relatively minor thing compared with what China would have to do. Right. And the other piece is that a lot of China's debt at the corporate level is foreign denominated U.S. dollar type debt where they have to pay it back in U.S. dollars. There's not a lot of foreign denominated debt in the United States. We don't owe in euros very often. Uh, it's pretty normal to be in dollars. And you're, you're ready to talk now. Well, we'll talk about something else. Change the job. There's an elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned. It's oh. a nice elephant. It's a very sweet, kind, I, gentle elephant. I hope you have a good shovel. I do. Oh, good. Payrolls. We, we used to talk about the payrolls, and they were stuck. Payroll reports, which comes out every week, was stuck at about 700,000 for months. 700,000 payrolls? Plus 700,000 layoffs. Layoffs. There we go. It's called the payroll report. Yeah. And instead of that, we had a 278,000. I'm sorry. We had a hundred and what I missed. It. Yeah. 200 some thousand dollar layoff this year, this month, this week. But the big news is the net hiring in, in the month of May, it's 559,000. That's a big deal. That's a it was really big deal. It was 278,000 in April. The unemployment rate fell to 5.8% in May, which is still sounds really high compared to 3.5% unemployment we had in February of 2020. But just as a side note, when I first started my career, which was now before the hills got dusty, but we're talking about 20 plus, we'll, we'll say that, 30 years ago, uh, the unemployment rate of 6% was considered full employment when I started my career. Yep. They said if you ever got below 6%, you were going to have runaway inflation because 6% was just the, the where we, we thought every, we need to have 6% unemployed at any given time to make sure that we can fill jobs when they open up. Of course, we're having trouble filling jobs when they open up right now. Right. Which is, which is a huge conundrum, by the way. Um, the expectation, by the way, for, this, for, for the month was a million new jobs. We got 559,000. And it's still a big question as to why people are not working. And I know that the, there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction, but only a small percent, relatively small percentage of the people who are not working, who are looking for jobs, are in fact drawing unemployment insurance. So the extra $300 is going to have some effect. About 15, 20% of the people who are not working but are looking for jobs are drawing unemployment insurance. Now we'll see in the next month or two, we're going to see some changes. 27 states, I think it is now. I may may have messed up on the numbers. 13 or 27 states have cut off the extra $300 unemployment insurance. Right. If that was the cause of people not working, then we'll see employment jump dramatically over the next couple of months. The Texas Tribune has a really good article on this subject. The headline is, Without child care, Texas's unemployed mothers are struggling to re-enter the workforce. 
as federal yeah, benefits huge. cease. And that's kind of ubiquitous across the country. Child care, it's one of the most impacted areas of COVID because they generally have the lowest margins and the lowest uh, reserves. And when you don't have kids in the building, you got to lay off your employees. You lose your lease. You lose your lease. Then how do you get started back up? You've got all kinds of licensing requirements, no matter where you are to get started back up. You got to make sure it's safe. Obviously, this is a good idea. You don't want to have childcare facilities that are not safe. But it's a large process. It's a large buildup to get this going. And so when you yank a bunch of them out and then say, all right, we're coming back, it takes a while. And when you don't have flexibility in your hours, it means you're limited on what childcare options you have. Uh, I think where he's going with that is that when you lay off folks in childcare, they go and get other jobs or the childcare facility goes away Getting in the new childcare facility is difficult. The problem with it is that those people who got laid off who were working in childcare, in many cases, found jobs someplace else. It's not hard to find a job right now. And in many cases, found jobs that paid them more than childcare, which means that for the childcare facility to open back up again, they have to raise the cost bringing your child in. And for people at low income position, particularly, which is where we're missing a lot of the employees, raising the cost of childcare makes it economically infeasible for them to go back to work and that's a problem we're going to we have to we need to figure out some way addressing and by the way one of the bills that the president has proposed to congress does do that exactly it gives it gives supplemental income to child care providers thereby allowing child care to be less expensive uh, other places in the world in some states like connecticut do do provide state support for child care providers yeah, on that and in doing so they have point. higher they have higher employment rates we've talked quite a lot about demographics over the last several weeks and several years and several decades uh china just came out with its three child policy correction um we talked about that last week it, it, just recently just five years ago it went from a one child to two child policy and now they're saying three children because the, the census numbers are saying their population is shrinking and they're getting older and so when they met they said hey this is not a good trend let's give some incentives we're going to start paying for child care for people that are having kids because otherwise we're not going to have enough kids long term obviously that's a communist concept but so is public school. Having the ability for the kid to go to school, period, is a communist concept. It's a socialist concept of how do we provide education to make a better workforce, which is capitalist. So we have this weird hodgepodge. When we're talking about this area of childcare, this pre-kindergarten area of childcare, which is the hardest area to fill up, you're hitting the lowest and least paid people, which are also the people that are most likely to be off of, of uh, their employment. We got lots more to talk about. Th that's maybe the big key. The elephant in the room there was that, I think. Uh, we talk about other things as the elephant in the room, but this is the reason why the recovery is lagging, is that it's the supply-demand issue again. Well, there's another reason the recovery is lagging. We can talk about that, too, and that is the fact that the delivery times We've got the ISM uh, indexes for manufacturing and for services, and both of them are showing the highest delivery times since they've been measured. Yeah, and the most expensive deliveries. 
So we'll talk more about that and what it means on the other side of these commercials. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, our email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure and on the line with me, I have Jeff McClure. Uh, Together we are the bald duo or balding duo. Are you still balding? Are you balded? I think I'm balded. Uh, I think I've got as bald as I'm going to get. I I think so. I think at this point on in your life, you're simply going to get hairier. But I'm not bald-faced, either of you. Neither am I. Neither of us are so bald-faced. We, we are bearded, so we are not bald-faced in any way. We cannot be bald-faced liars. Correct. We are... It's a good sign. Nor can we be bald-faced truth-tellers. We're just simply not bald-faced. But bald-nosed. Definitely bald-nosed. So we were, talking, we we're talking about the ISM reports. Yes. And that's the Institute for Service Management. Institute for Supply Management, and they do this report where they go out and talk to the people who buy stuff for businesses because they can figure out how businesses are doing by how much stuff they're ordering in advance. So the the supply managers at the various businesses, whether it's a restaurant, which is a service business, or a manufacturing business, order stuff, and they have a good feel for what's coming down the road. The ISM for the service area. Let's see. I've got to look at it. I've got to find it here again. It's 70. The supplier deliveries index rate is 70.4. Let's see. 62.7. All of these are in massive growth. No, I'm sorry. 64% for services, which is the highest it's ever been. That's the fastest growing since we've measured the ISM index for services. Probably would be this high following World War II. But the deliveries are slow at 70. The higher the number above 50, the bigger the, the, disparity, the disparity is here, which means that businesses are having slow deliveries and the things that they're ordering are costing more, which is slowing things down across the board. And eventually that'll pick up. And you most likely, our listeners have experienced it. If you're ordering anything online, you know, the whole prime shipping thing that everybody, you know, one day shipping or two day shipping. It's you're lucky if you get a one day or two day shipping these days. It's I'm pretty unlikely that that is normal to have one or two day shipping actually occur. Uh, and in my own anecdotal, you know, tracking of this, we've ordered several things over the last several weeks and none of them have come in on time. Um, this is true whether you're getting it through U.S. Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, through private shipping to get it to a corporation. Everything is slower because there's a there are backlogs of things at factories, not enough trucks to get them off the lot or to a ship, to a port, not enough containers to get them on the ship, not enough ships to get them all to where they're supposed to go. And then when they get there, not enough trucks and truck drivers to get them to where they're going to the next stop. So every point along the chain has shortages 
And that's going to take some time to get this all figured out. And there's a lot of people that will get jobs out of this. And there's probably people that are going to lose their jobs over it. Uh, All that's saying is that we're in such a big boom. Things are so good that we're not really sure how to handle it yet. We got to figure that out. It's a good problem to have, though. Would you agree with that? I think it's a good problem to have. And I think it'll solve itself. If prices rise on the supplies and they stay up, causes then we'll develop more capacity to fill those supply gaps. If it's the other profitable thing is we, to do it, we'll do it. Yeah, it just takes time. The investment in pro- productivity is rising at a 5.4% annualized rate right now. That this is, was in the first quarter. That is fantastic. I suspect that we're going to see a, a larger increase in productivity in the second quarter. And you say 5.4% annually, that doesn't sound like very much. Well, it is actually a lot when you consider that the last 20 years, the the productivity in the United States rose at 1% or 2% a year. It's rising at a rate of 5.4% a year. Now, part of that is the fact that people are just working harder and being more efficient. But the other side of that is there's a lot of money being spent. There's a 15% annualized rate of investment in new equipment. A lot of that new equipment is automating equipment because it's it's become very obvious to a lot of employers. And this is a long-term trend. Yeah, lots of factories being developed in, in the Midwest, huge numbers of factories being developed in the Midwest, far more than what we've seen over the last several decades. It's like Chinese level of factory growth that we are, you know, that's going to take years. It's, these things don't get built overnight unless you're Tesla, and then they can build it in like three months, but... And a lot of factories and a lot of places, they're automating things. And again, we've seen this start in McDonald's where you can go to the front, go to a kiosk and order your meal. And I think you're going to see a lot, lot more of that go on because employers have become aware of the fact it's getting hard. It's hard to control the labor. It's hard to get it when you need it. It's hard to get rid of it when you don't need it. And I think we're going to see a tremendous surge in automation. And again, this takes time. This is a multi-year process. But I think employees have been burned badly enough on this that they'll spend the money that's necessary to get the job done. Right. Uh, so all of that, as as rough as we're talking about with the supply shortages and the price spikes and all of that, all of those are signs of good things coming. If you're trying to buy something and it's a lot more expensive than it was read almost any car, any house, um, any plumber, any electrician. Um, just know that over time, this is going to get fixed. If it stays this profitable to be a plumber, they're going to hire more plumbers. If it stays this profitable to sell used cars, um, it would mean that no new cars continue to get made forever. And that's I not that reasonable. Yeah. I think that will correct itself. The, but we, we get, what we'll get is more chip plants and we'll get the new car manufacturers to come back up to speed. Taiwan as a nation, not as the government, but as the, the whole group in Taiwan, they have a large number of chip factories under construction in Arizona and in Texas and it, Yes, this is happening here because it's cheaper to transport the chip 
from the factory in the United States to the other factory in the United States than it is to ship it from Taiwan. I know that's hard to understand, but it's true. As long as the workforce is automated. Otherwise, it's a lot more expensive to use Americans to do the work because we're generally better qualified and better educated than our competitors elsewhere in the world. And the other thing is the Taiwan-based companies are a little bit nervous about being concentrated on that island. First, yes. it's having the worst drought it's had in 50 years. And, and, there and secondly, a, there is the next-door neighbor who wants to invade it. Yes, there's a fleet buildup happening. Anytime your neighbor is stacking tanks um, outside your property line, it might cause you to be a little nervous. And Taiwan is definitely looking at that. Um, the Economist... Uh, at the end of May had a cover that said the most dangerous place on the planet. And it was a picture of Taiwan and it's kind of a picture from a radar perspective of the radar line going around in a circle. And to the north and west is China and there's a massive fleet and there's a flag over the fleet that shows it's Chinese. And then to the south and the east, there's a massive fleet and it's got an American flag over it. Taiwan's right there in the middle. So yeah, they are investing in diversifying their uh, ability to stay independent. Read an interesting article in The Economist that said we're a little short on the Navy right now. Yes, we are more than a little we short have, on the Navy right now. We only had one Pacific carrier, one carrier operating in the Pacific, an old one, and it got moved into the Persian Gulf to cover the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We have five of our carriers in dry dock right now. That that is huge, which long term is a good thing. Yeah, and we're about too. out of time. Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, if you'd want to get our information, uh, you can call locally. There's voicemail on the weekend. Real live people during the week. Two five four nine four seven eleven eleven. Or you can call that same line toll free one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can listen to uh, podcasts and re recordings of our program going back lots of time. Sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletter. You can contact us through the contact form or our phone numbers are on there as well. And you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.